Thanks for tuning into the Salesforce Way Podcast, Episode Thirteen. Salesforce Way is the podcast meant for Salesforce developers. In each episode, I invite a guest to share the insight of a topic. Our goal is to at least slightly help you not only in the Salesforce world, but in general become a better software engineer. If you like our content, consider to follow us by the RSS feed or in the iTunes, so you won't miss any updates. In addition to the podcast, there is a newsletter where we share more useful information, such as other chats with the guests, good developer videos, learning courses, mistakes to avoid, and so on and so on. If you are in the journey to become a good software engineer, just like me, I'm confident that you will find it home after subscribing to the newsletter. So. The RSS feed, the iTunes link, my Twitter, the newsletter can be all found at our website salesforceway.com. Now let's start the show, shall we? Software industry is moving fast. The Salesforce Classic Org-driven model. No longer keeps up with the modern software development paradigm. Let's face it, org-driven is ancient, slow, stubborn, and error-prone. Luckily, Salesforce is aware of this issue and has introduced the new paradigm to remedy it. It's the tooling combination of DX, Scratch Org, and the second-generation packaging. This new paradigm is source-driven, modular, and fully aligned with the industry best practices. In this episode, John Daniel joins me to share his invaluable experience on helping large firms to transition Salesforce code bases from the old happy soup way to the new modular way. As usual, we discussed why, how, and what. If you need more technical information, I'd encourage you. After listening to us, to check John's videos linked in the show notes. Hello, everybody. This is Xi Xiao. This is yet another episode of Salesforce Way Podcast. And today I'm so happy to sit together with John Daniel to talk about a topic. The topic name is splitting Salesforce solutions into modules. I was so excited the first time when I see the video that John explains how in Salesforce world we can really split the Happy Soup solutions into small modules. So that's the. Also, the reason I invited John today here to be the guest and、uh, share his experience. Hello, John. Hello, Xi.、Uh, would you mind to introduce yourself a bit?、Uh, certainly, certainly. First of all, thank you very much for the invite.、Uh, I'm honored to be here.、Um, again, my name is John Daniel. I'm、uh, currently the、uh, director of platform architecture for a Salesforce、uh, partner named、uh, Rootstock Software. Um, my background is、uh, I've been in IT and development and architecture for 
24 years now, somewhere in that range. Um, I've been involved in other technologies, Java, Oracle, J2E, enterprise development. And about 10 years ago, I switched over to Salesforce. Um, in that time, I've worked for ISVs and um, partners, and uh, I was the architect of a law firm, large law firm at one point, and now I'm here at uh, Rootstock. So. Great. I know you have a lot of great experience in Salesforce world, and uh, uh, you're a person who are willing to share your experience, which, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, the, too many people have shared their experience with me, so I, it's only right that I give back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also definitely you're one of the guys who have a lot of uh, Salesforce certificates as well. I just wonder for you guys, like I understand from your LinkedIn profile, you have you have more than 14 certificates at the moment, right? Uh, yeah, it's either. Or even more than that. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm currently, I'm the... Uh... Sales Cloud, Service Cloud, um, uh, the Platform Developer 1 and 2 certifications, Platform App, and uh, I have almost all of the Technical Architect uh, Designer certifications, and I have one more to get, and then I'll go to the review board to get my CTA. So. Oh, okay. Good luck for that. Thank you. Yeah, for our session, uh, I wanted to actually split it into two, um, let's say, modules. The first part is that uh, you have talked a lot in your architecting unlock packages in your Salesforce work video, which was uh, recorded last year in Trailhead uh, DX session uh, in March, right? That's right. 2018. Yeah, so that video link we will put in our show notes for the, our listeners to, to, to watch. It has a lot of insights over there. So I have watched it multiple times, so I still want to take uh, some look uh, when, when you talk about how to handle the, the dependency injection. That part I still don't quite get. But here, we will spend five to 10 minutes only just to quickly go through the journey you have, uh, you have gone through and make sure our listeners understand what we're talking about. And then the second module uh, in our, this session is that I want to have a, a quick discussion with you to talk about uh, how we can govern a project and a team who want to take the same journey as you did. So how we make sure the final result is as expected and has a success story. So that's something you haven't talked much in your video, but I think it's also super important. How does this uh, uh, schedule sound for you? Absolutely. Sounds good. Okay. So I will start talking. So you correct me if I made any mistakes, but I just want to quickly go to through. <laughs> so I understand that in your journey, the Salesforce org is kind of like a medium to large size. And uh, you said there are like more than 600 Apex classes, 36 Apex exchange packages, and uh, 80 data as object, like, like the custom object created. And in the, full, uh, in the team, you have three full-time programmers. Let's say at the beginning, only two full-time, and then uh, the team hired a new one joining, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's like the size of the org you were working on. And uh, back in 2016, you heard about the new DX and the second generation packaging. So the company wanted to 
give it a try and shifting to this you no know, modulized way to split the solutions and do it in a modern fashion for the solution development. But uh, it took some months for the whole team to see how the environment can be split. So there were a lot of discussions, a lot of tryouts, and uh, you guys defined like, uh, so you have a custom applications, you have enhancements of the existing installed managed packages, and you have used the op open source libraries like the Apex Common, Apex Mark, and you have, of course, third-party services and integrations with other environments. So those like big topic kind of uh, allows you guys to start to put the metadata into certain boxes. So categorize them into different, uh, you know, boxes. I think that's what you guys uh, started from. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Is it so? Okay. Hopefully I didn't make any uh, mistake. Um, and then, of course, uh, during the time, the DX and uh, packaging wasn't so mature. And uh, you get the information from Salesforce that uh, we still need to wait. So we cannot use it uh, directly. So the team started to, you know, rename the metadata, for example, put some prefix so that the, the metadata falls into certain packages. Uh, and when the DX and the packaging uh, feature become mature, then you can uh, quickly start to, uh, you know, just organize them into uh, the corresponding packages. Absolutely. Is is it like this? Okay. <laughs> I try to go into through to make sure I really understand the thing. And and then uh, fast forward to maybe 2017, uh, the team started to use Jenkins continuous integration. And since you you guys started to make uh, create the packages, and uh, you know there are two styles of the still the building and the development uh, job still existing. One is the 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 package that you guys have already created, and the, and the other side is the remaining unpacked code. So the Jenkins have to handle both two streams simultaneously, right? Exactly. That's a that's quite an interesting. Um, experience to me usually you know for orgs they don't do two pipeline deployments but i think that's a specific case for you you have to do that since you are doing the, the packaging stuff um yeah definitely i mean it, it's i agree that they don't normally do two uh, streams like that but in this case it's actually um shift the arrangement they're, they're not parallel streams but the the CLI, the DX modules are streams that are upstream, for lack of a better word, or, or before the happy soup stream. So they feed the artifacts from those um, CLI streams feed into the happy soup uh, overall process. And so you install the you install the packages that you've just created, and then you install the remaining bit of um, happy soup unpackaged code to get a look to see if that's working. So, yeah. And um, during the time the team starts to create the package, there is one unique new challenge pop up. That is the inner package communication, right? So we we now split things into different packages, but how to make sure they still can communicate one with another? That was like one challenge you shared in the video as well, mm -hmm. and you also shared how you tackle that uh, problem, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's definitely one great point. If、uh, some other listeners、uh, later need to go through the same journey, so those caveats, I think we all need to pay attention to.、Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And、uh, at the end of the video, you said the final result would be like thirty packages in the end, right? Yes, exactly. So. That's kind of a long journey, as as I understand. It won't happen in several months. Yes, it'll all it'll always be a long journey.、Um, okay, so this is the whole story that I understood from your video. So you have done a lot of things, but now I want to start to ask you some questions that has not been covered in your video. Okay. So the whole thing, do we really need DX and unlock packages? Because I'm still new to Salesforce, I'm here for only one year, and、uh, most of the things I've used the, the Happy Soup way, or just the first generation package, this unmanaged package. I sometimes also use that, but、uh, what DX and, and unlock package really bring values for this journey for your mission? Could you let us know? Um, yeah, it's it's a, a lot of different things. I mean, you know, the traditional Salesforce development. Um, you know, it's been a, the paradigm's been around for 15 plus years, and we've we've had、um, a single environment, a single org that had all of the metadata、um, dumped into it. But it's it's created it in some respects it's created some bad habits in the world of Salesforce in that you know that there is no clear demarcation of Certain applications within the org. All too often, we've treated the Salesforce org as its own single application, as its own single unit. But the reality is,、um, especially in in medium class、uh, customers, medium sized customers to large enterprise customers, it's it doesn't become necessarily an application, but rather an entire platform that hosts lots of different applications. And so, if you think about the paradigm in that respect. You you quickly realize that it's difficult to segment one application from another, and so then it becomes, you know, bad habits like circular dependencies, where one where object A depends on object B, which depends on object C, and and C depends on object A, and so that makes complicated issues around deployments.、Um, I mentioned that you know our, our DevOps process、uh, back at the law firm and. And I've seen it in other environments that I've been in as well. I mean, the DevOps process just to move code from a single、uh, development place, whether it be by change set or by、um, AMP-based deployment, Apache AMP-based deployment,、um, it, it can be very cumbersome, very complicated.、Um, you've got to make sure that you get all kinds of account for all the different pieces of metadata, and because they're not Grouped as a single unit, it becomes difficult to understand what do you want to push forward to the next environment and and what do you what needs to stay behind. It just it, it becomes a very huge logistical nightmare, and we lose a lot of time as Salesforce developers grappling with those kind of questions.、Um, you know, when you've got、uh, I guess some of the other reasons that we went down this path.、Um, you know, again, it was the confusion around the the metadata dependencies. It was We had a, we had an issue with onboarding.、Um, onboarding new developers was problematic because, again, in a, in a very large unorganized code base, 
the simple question is, where do you begin their training? Where do, where do you focus them? And, uh, you know, all too often it relies on a couple of key people who have very in-depth tribal knowledge, if you want to say that. And you've got them because it, it's difficult to document such a, a monstrous large code base. So, you know, one of the appealing factors of DX and, and unlock packages and, and the second generation packaging was that, you know, we would be able to segment our code base is a lot easier and, and um, focus new developers only on a single module versus several modules out there. Um, you know, you, you talk about um, traceability and auditability um, throughout the de development process. So you've got um, be a, some sort of ticket system, some sort of requirement system, call it JIRA or Rally or whatever system you're using. You know, they, they put out a, uh, a feature enhancement or a bug um, fix request. And then you've got to, you've got to have, or a mature development shop needs to have some sort of traceability from the point where those tickets are made all the way to the deployment process. We need to know what commits were made to, um, what development changes were made for this rally ticket. Um, and, and it was bundled into this particular release. And so when this release went to testing, we knew that this rally ticket was being satisfied. And then when that um, version makes it all the way to production, you know, later on we can see that if there's a problem, we can understand what tickets were involved with that type of, um, with, with that release. That, that was very difficult before because, again, there's very little linkage between the movement of metadata through the environments to what actually is um, prompting the need for the change to begin with. Whereas, you know, if you get modules and, and you have versioned artifacts that contain the metadata and the, and the artifact itself becomes, or the module becomes the, the mechanism to push the code and transition the code through the environments, it's a whole lot easier to trace through from that perspective. So those are definitely, you know, key concepts throughout any kind of IT organization is just we haven't had that before now, really, in uh, the Salesforce world. We talk about the DX and the unlock and package. How about the Scratch Org? I know Scratch Org somehow is linked with DX and the unlock and package development. Mm -hmm. And in your video, you said um, by the time when you start to you know, introduce this new development process, your colleagues hated you. Because you want to refresh the full copy yeah. sandbox UAT, and you want the, the developer sandbox to be refreshed with an even shorter uh, frequency. So why was that, and what benefit does it bring to us? So within this, the, the classic Salesforce development paradigm, you've always had, uh, of course, your production org. You've always had um, various types of sandboxes, and what... Um, you know, you would have a full copy sandbox that would typically be your UAT or regression testing environment. And then you would have what are called developer sandboxes. Um, I've seen organizations go usually one of two routes. Um, they usually adopt the paradigm where they put all the developers into a single sandbox. And um, so a single environment, a single um, or Salesforce org, and all the development is done there. There, there are issues with that type of approach. Um, you know, you might have a developer, two developers, each working on the same Apex class, and that's going to be problematic because whoever commits their changes last, that's the change that goes. They override 
they overwrite the um, their, their predecessors' um, changes and commits. So all too often you get uh, problems where oh my changes developer A's changes have vanished and nobody knows where they are because again the the paradigm is the org is the source of truth, not source control. Source control inherently allows you to have multiple streams, and then when you do pull requests or, or some sort of merging operation to a central stream, you can recognize when the developer A's work and developer B's work has to be blended together and stuff like that. So, you know, when you have a, a single developer or, or a single org for all developers, you just run into all, all those kind of problems. I've seen other organizations take the opposite paradigm where they set up a sandbox for every developer. So each developer has their own sandbox. And again, but those sandboxes have been um, spun up from prod, so they already have some uh, uh, amount of code in them. Um, you know, I've seen ISVs do the same thing where they spin up uh, developer edition um, environments, and they very much want um, to use source control as the change mechanism. The, the issues that those guys would run into are things like, well, how do you get the developer editions or the, or the single sandbox orgs 100% accurate and 100% sterile, a sterile development environment, so that the only thing that's going in there is the source code from, say, Git, uh, a Git repo, GitHub, or something like that. And you know, I've seen organizations go to great lengths to manage that process, to provide data for those environments, and it, be, I mean, it just increases the DevOps uh, cycle tremendously. So, you know, you've got um, issues like um, those developer edition sandboxes or may stay around to, for a long time. And so when I came to, like, the law firm, I mean, they, they definitely had they, – they had not refreshed the environment in quite, in quite some time. And that the problem was they didn't understand what code was in there that was throwaway, what code that was in there which was – um, experimental, but didn't make it, and 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 is is obsolete now. And then one of the, the one of the very first things I did when I went to that law firm was get them out of a jam where they we had to identify only the changes that needed to be migrated into the next test environment and eventually get ready for the production release that was um, only a month away. And so those you know without kind of any kind of visibility into what changes are going on, again it, they're. Lots of people, lots of consultants, or lots of uh, companies will adopt things like spreadsheets, manual spreadsheets, documenting exactly the metadata components, so they know what to put into the next change set. Scratch orgs are beautiful because scratch orgs cannot live forever. Because of that, it forces the developers to think and say, "Okay, I need to make sure that any of my changes are copied locally and and put and checked into my source control." That paradigm shift right there has been has been long overdue in the world of Salesforce development. And so, yes, I was so excited about it because I, I, I had a mechanism that forces the developers to think about moving the source of truth out of the orgs and moving the source of truth over to the um, to the source control repos. Hey, it's she here, your host. I really appreciate you listening to the show. If you enjoy our content. Don't forget to go to our website, check the show notes of the episode, which contains the links to the points we just discussed in the show. Those are the things we consider important, but don't have time to cover in the talk. Oh, by the way, 
I do also suggest that you subscribe to our newsletter, where more information is shared constantly. So after listening to this episode, do head out to our website salesforceway.com and find more useful information over there. Now let's get back to the show. It's kind of interesting. For instance, here is um, because I'm new here in Salesforce world, and when I start to introduce, you know, Scratchog to some of my colleagues or or coworkers, they don't quite get the idea of using Scratchog. And、uh, Scratchog has its certain limitation. I, I'm not exactly sure about that. There's certain functionality that works in Dev、uh, static sandbox, but does not work in Scratchog.、Mm-hmm. Uh, So, so they always telling me,、uh, don't use that. So time is the money. Let's still stick to the old way.、Mm-hmm. So you know that's something I cannot easily argue with them because I'm lacking of experience and I cannot take the full responsibility if the project fails due to some, you know, technical limitation.、Mm-hmm. But I'm still trying to exploring the scratch org, and whenever possible, and whenever it's all. Like a, a fresh new project with only one to two developer, I always start to encourage the admins plus the developers to to give it a try.、Oh, yeah. So that's what I can do so far. And you're and you're not alone. I've heard those stories.、Um, the 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 reluctance to transition to Scratch Orgs. I mean, first of all, utilizing Scratch Orgs alone is not the answer. Scratch Orgs by themselves. Don't, are, are not a viable option unless you have so, the the source control at a mature state where it represents the state of the org and information like that. And then there、um, there there are some DevOps processes that you have to figure out.、Um, you know, it, it, it's the the DX works, but it, it works in, in combination with all of these different、um, features of the DX world together. The one in isolation barely work、um, rarely works from that perspective. And you know, it, and it makes, and I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, a lot of consultants, especially out there, they have they're on a fixed budget. They have a fixed amount of time to set of hours to work with. They've got to get the feature in there. They have all what they've done it the traditional way. They know how to deliver in the traditional way, and it requires an investment on their side to learn,、uh, take the time to learn how the best、um, utilize the DX infrastructure to deliver their、um, solutions to the end customers. And still do it on budget, and so it's. I mean, I mean, whether it, actually whether it's an ISV or a, a consultancy, there's going to be a level of investment of time to learn the new paradigm. And so, yeah, your your story is definitely one that's common out there. Okay, good to know about that. In your video, you talk about the package dependency management. You said that you were waiting for a single command line. In DX, so that we can install all the dependent packages. So was that already come true, or you are still waiting for that? No,、um, we、uh, we created、uh, a custom. I, I mentioned in that video that、um, they had announced the the ability to create your own custom plugins for、uh, the DX command line, and we went.、Mm-hmm. Um, we have set up.、Uh, there's actually Fabian、uh, Town. Talent out of、uh, France created the plugin. He and I worked on that, and then、uh, Rootstock has created our own version of that plugin as well. And so both of them are available. 
and they, they do rudimentary functions to you know read the project um, JSON, read the dependencies in there, and it just it's, it becomes a step saver to set up your scratch org and install all the dependencies in there. So, so the the two repo you mentioned that they are open source or not? One of them is open source. One of them is about to be open source. <laughs> oh really? Okay. Yeah. Maybe you can share me the at least the first Absolutely. one I'll put in our show notes yeah, yeah. and let the the listeners. Mm -hmm. And also the second one, whenever it's already open source, I think you, you will yell out in Twitter, then that will get that link as well. Absolutely. Thanks very much. And just to make sure I, I fully understand the dependence management, the, the issue is that when we spin up a scratch work, we need to install the dependent managed package or unmanaged package just to make sure my own solution works. So my own solution depending on multiple packages, those things a hard to install at the moment into Scratch Org. That's a problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's hard. I think it's more tedious now. And uh, okay. these plugins sort of, you know, remove some of the tedious nature out of it. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And these plugins can install them in sequence, right? You define the sequence and then you will go to the, maybe in the JSON file you mentioned, and yeah. then, or, or the project file, and then fetch all these uh, needed uh, packages, right? That's, That's how, how it does. Okay, I got it. Now let's shift our gear to the other side, which is uh, governing the, the team and the project. So it's a fantastic journey you have uh, gone through, but how originally you convinced the team, the management to really go uh, down this road? <laughs> All right. Um, in my case, when I was when I was at the law firm, I was the lead architect there, and the development team was fairly small. Um, we talked all the time. We were in content. We realized the state of affairs for our code base. Um, in general, just before we had heard about DX, we were trying to bring better organization to our code base. And we just knew that whenever we did any type of feature enhancement or, or bug fix that we would go ahead and make any changes in that local section of the code base so that we would just slowly start to refactor our code base to um, uh, the techniques that were outlined by things like um, uh, Dan Appleman's advanced um, Apex development book or Andy Fawcett's um, Force.com enterprise architecture book. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talk about the Apex Common, Apex Mox frameworks. And so at that time, we were starting to um, refactor our code base to go that direction. And so we were doing it not necessarily as an official project, but it was sort of like under the <laughs> uh, under under the radar, so to speak. So so you mean at that moment, the code base doesn't use the Apex Common and Apex uh, Mock? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Wow, that's a big shift. If you want to apply that into the foundation of all your code, mm -hmm. and and the developers that I had at the time were all, except for one of them, we were familiar with, and had used those libraries in previous um, jobs as well. Uh, personally, I used to work for Financial Force, so I uh, learned firsthand the value of those um, libraries, and uh, it didn't make sense to long-term to have a code base without those kind of libraries and separation of concerns. And uh, so 
So when DX was announced and, uh, you know, it was, you know, the promise of source code is the truth and the ability to segment things out, it just, it, it, it just it made logical sense. It was a no brainer for us. We were just like, we're going this direction anyway. This allows us to go that much farther. And so we just began this refactoring effort, um, again, under the radar. Management at the law firm didn't, to some degree, didn't even know what I was talking about. When I <laughs> okay. And so, you know, we we wanted to make our lives better, we the developers. And so we just went ahead and started doing this these best practices. And so that's about as far as management um, had visibility to it. They were just knew that we were continually working to implement better and best practices. And, uh, and so um, when the packaging um, became... So that was what was that? So that was like the fall of 2016. So October is when we really started doing that effort. And so we spent the better part of a year uh, refactoring our code bases. Um, and then in what was it? 2017 at Dreamforce they announced Unlock Packages, and we were able to um, slide a lot of uh, slide of a lot of our code base, at least the base pieces into packages very quickly because it was all the, the heavy work is not so much putting things into packages. The heavy work is getting your code organized a, in a systematic way. And when you have a code base that is organized in a systematic way, you can do all kinds of things very quickly. Um, one of the, one of the biggest issues that people struggle with out in the um, community is that they don't tackle the refactoring and the organization aspect of the, um, the code base initially. They just want to move straight to, um, unlock packages and DX, mm. and they they struggle sometimes because they have difficulty breaking those the, their code bases up because of among other things circular dependencies and stuff like that. So it, it becomes a struggle. So I think uh, for our listeners, there are many teams are waiting to you know take the same adventurer journey as you did. Do you have any recommendations to them? what they should prepare in advance before they do this, like any trainings to the team, negotiation with the management, yeah. uh, vision set, all these things. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the, the management question, I've, uh, um, so I'll say it this way. I'm, I'm currently on my third code base. So I, I've transitioned to rootstock. Um, I'm in the process of transitioning the code base for Rootstock, and I'm overseeing a lot of our larger clients. And in one client in particular, I'm overseeing their transition to DX, and I'm helping them along with there. And so I, I'm seeing – I'm on my third code base to transition. Um, this, the last two code bases that I've been working on, it has involved more management conversations um, I think the key things are to make management aware that you're going to start a process um, to, you know, create a better, more organized code base, a more maintainable code base. So it's it's the same arguments that we've always had to make to as far as value proposition to management. You know, they've got to trust us enough to understand that. We are going to spend a little bit of extra time. It's going to it's going to be an investment. It will improve our our delivery process, our time to market process, a whole lot better down the road. Uh, but it will not be something that we can make a quick change to. And 
Um, you know, depending on how far you take it, I mean, if you take it as far as, as we did with, you know, implementing these um, open source frameworks and, and properly laying out separation of concerns and, and, and layering your application, you know, there's a lot of synergies that happens, a lot of ease, a lot of, of the code base becomes far more nimble and able to react to business demands. Um, we've seen that time and again. So there's definitely that negotiation. You have to at least make management aware. Um, for your development team, it is about education. Um, one of the one of the trans code transitions I've got right now, um, I have I, one I've spent educating one team for the past six months, and another one I'm just starting to bring them up to speed on on the basic concepts of DX. So. You know, one of the transitions is simply the transition in learning about uh, the new IDE that Salesforce is working with, uh, which is the Visual Studio Code. For, for you know, a decade or more now, we've been working off of the Eclipse-based um, Force.com IDE. And Salesforce's son is, you know, stop support for that. And developers need to start do, um, doing that kind of a transition now. I mean, the you don't have to use VS Code only on DX projects. You can use VS Code now on classic type development with sandboxes and, and, and that type of things. So starting your developers to transition into these newer concepts. Um, things like the trailhead modules are a good way to get a, um, uh, the team starting to get least familiar with the basic concepts. There is, you know, in our case, you know, we've again been using the Apex Common and the Apex Mox frameworks and the Force DI frameworks is another one that we've been using of late. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of blog articles, a lot of uh, um, some videos, um, a lot of different material that we've been um, getting our developers to to read and digest and watch and stuff like that, um, just so that they can understand a new paradigm that we're talking about um, that they may not have been used to before. And so it, it's a it's a, a complete different way of thought thinking as far as how you lay out your code. And layout your code is so many different things, but that's that education that you need to start working with or getting your team ready for. Um, the other the other piece is, I guess, you know, I talk about it in the, in this video from Trailhead DX. You know, identify the applications that you want to identify where you want to go. You know, identify the modules that you're that you want to do, and then from that identification, figure out how they'll be dependent on each other. And then basically my advice is to tackle the, the, the base of that dependency tree that you drive. So tackle that piece first and slowly work up through and into um, the, the downstream dependencies or, or the branches of the dependency tree, whatever, however you want to phrase it. Start with that and, and, and pull that code out to its own module and to its own project and slowly bring that process to where you perfect that process and you take it away from the happy soup code base and stuff like that. So you, you basically siphon off sections and modules at a time. And then, you know, just work on it when you can. If you have, if you, if you're blessed to have management, um, say, yeah, go dedicate a team to go and do this, then get after it and make it happen, make it happen quickly, you know, but, um, it's a transition because, you know, it's a, it's a change in thought process more than anything. I got it. So in this case, what size of the business should uh, take uh, this new process into consideration? Should all size of a business or just a certain certain categories of them? Um, 
is it a tough question? It's, it's a tough question. Obviously, it boils down to what is your team ready to do and what is your business ready to do. Um, so I guess the way I qualify that is there's a lot of there's a lot of companies in Salesforce that are small to small to medium, and those are the companies that don't really have large IT shops at all or or IT shops at all. And I, I don't think those people are going to go into the realm of DX. Um, the need is less there, and they don't have people to support them going forward. And so I think that, that that's definitely one group that probably won't go into the world of DX, or DX won't affect them that much. Um, you know, businesses that have large code bases, um, I, uh, any business that has multiple production orgs is probably a very large organization and has uh, large IT shops. But basically, you're going to need a, a, an IT shop that understands these concepts that we knew in other languages like Java and, and .NET about, you know, core code organization and architectural principles. Um, but if you, if you have any kind of that, um, you know, if, you ha if you're in, in, in an environment that has lots of issues with deployments and change sets are problematic and, and there's always gaps in the change set and it's missing and it's, and it's a struggle to understand what went from development to test and then test to production. That's where DX packaging will help tremendously with that. Um, you know, we've, you know those, are, those are the types of things I say. I guess one caveat right now is, um, another caveat right now is, is how much code do you have that is programmatic, Apex-based, Visual Force, Lightning component development, that type of thing, versus um, process builders and visual flows. Um, process builders and visual flows are easier for non-technical people to implement and implement very complex uh, logical processes. But in doing so, there I have seen environments. It's it's a struggle to understand best practices that you would normally see in a, in a traditional IT shop. And so those best practices don't always emerge in the process builder and visual flow um, environments. And so that's going to be difficult to again, break those process builders and visual flows up into modules and allow you to separate that out. It's, it, it's doable, but it's going, to be, it's going to be a struggle because, again, typically process builder and visual flow developers aren't, don't have the background of, of say, a, a more programmatic or developer-type background. So they're not going to be looking for those types of things. So should businesses do it? No, but, you know, again, what do your shop really need to do? Yeah, still a case-by-case case Oh, yeah. So the last question before I let you go is uh, the video we talk, we're talking about now has been a while, released has been a while. So do you have any updates after that? Things happened or, or, or new releases, new, new exciting, I don't know, open source uh, plugins to help you to do an easier job? Yeah. Um, so have there been updates to the Trailhead video? Most definitely. Um, Salesforce uh, had me out to a webinar last summer. We talked about some mm -hmm. more of the progress, some more of the, the concepts that we've been talking here. Uh, is it also recorded? It is recorded. It is available. I can pass you the link. Okay. Yes, please. We will put it in our show notes again. And then, um, and then there was a there was a large um, uh, request from the community for more in depth um, examples of what it was that I was talking about at the Trailhead DX um, session. So I put on a, a 
Dreamforce session uh, with another gentleman named mm -hmm. John Story, and uh, he he was the developer with me at the law firm, and okay. we go into we go into the weeds of the code about how we achieved a lot of these things, a lot of these different processes. Um, the uh, dynamic, uh, uh, the platform event dynamic subscriptions, um, you know, dependency injections with um, the uh, application factory from the Apex Common, um, and just how we started to improve on that. So, um, you know, one of the one of the enhancements that we did um, over the summer, um, Andy Fawcett from Salesforce, he's the VP of engineering um, over the uh, DX, uh, among other things, the DX department and, and whatnot. He and I got into a long discussion about the techniques that we used um, at the law firm, especially around this dependency injection concept. And uh, he realized that while it was a good concept, it was homegrown, if you will, at the law firm. And we needed a solution to give the community so that it was a a generic open source division. So um, Andy, myself, and a third developer named uh, Doug Ayers, who's also uh, the, he works for Salesforce, um, designing all of the content, the technical content for the trailhead areas. Um, the three of us put uh, a new open source project out there called the Force um, DI or Force Dependency Injection. Uh, we modeled it after uh, the Google Juice framework, which is a leading dependency injection framework in the world of Java. And, uh, you know, th it's, it's available now. Um, I can send you the links and stuff like that. And then um, in the later, in the, the two implementations that I've been doing since the summer, we've revamped the, the whole approach a little bit to incorporate this Force DI project. And so, again, the, the Dreamforce talk highlights the inclusion of that. Um, I encourage everybody to check out this Force DI fr um, framework because it is, much more than just dependency injection for Apex. Uh, it brings dependency injection to, to all facets of uh, Salesforce development, process builders, visual flows, um, visual force pages, lightning pages. It's an incredible framework, um, especially a lot of the, the enhancements that um, Andy Paulson and, and Doug Ayers especially um, made to it. it just the, the scope of that thing is awesome and the power of it. And then, um, then again, the Dreamforce talk um, highlights how we just sort of combine these three open source code bases and, and knitted them together. There's a, there's a fourth um, example code base uh, out there on GitHub that basically ties all these three together and just becomes a, a, a nice, simple starting point. Um, there's a couple of different people out there that I've talked to that have taken all of these uh, code bases and, and beginning the process themselves. So yes, there's been lots of improvements. There continue to be improvements um, as we implement and as we see the need for new features or new approaches and stuff like that. But dependency injection as a foundation has just um, made the entire transition to DX completely possible. Uh, I, it, without some sort of dependency injection, I doubt we would have been able to do any kind of real adoption of DX at all. And there's just so many different ways that helps stuff like that. So, so yeah, it continues to be very active, very alive, very um, moving quite a bit and, and lots of improvements. All right. Thanks, John. I think uh, this is the excellent place for us to end the session. And I really appreciate, you know, come to the show to share your experience and uh, especially your contribution back to the, the open community. So thank you. Thank you a lot, John. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. So let's keep in touch and uh, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hi, I'd like to thank you very much as you have reached the end of the show. If you find our content useful, please let me know and connect with me. If you are using Twitter, don't forget to let me know the number one point you have learned in this episode. All the information about the show, about me, the RSS, the iTunes, my Twitter, the newsletter, and the other episodes can be all found at our website salesforceway.com. So thank you again, and see you next time.